And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Last week we looked at all of chapter 13 and the first part of chapter 14. We left it at a pretty strong cliffhanger, which is they believed the bad report that 10 spies brought from the promised land rather than the good report brought by Joshua and Caleb. They said the land is good, but the people are mighty. The cities are fortified and we saw the Anakim there. This is a different uh, family branch, you might say, of Nephilim, giants in the land. And they decided that they were not going to go into the promised land. And when Joshua and Caleb begged them to trust in the Lord, they picked up stones. They were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb, kill Moses and Aaron, choose a new leader, and return to Egypt. And as things ramped up and got more and more intense, it said in verse 10, the glory of the Lord descended. That pillar of fire and cloud came between Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and the other members of the congregation. And that's where we left it. That God had come down, just like he had come down to protect the children of Israel from Egypt as they were getting ready to cross the Red Sea, he has to do the same thing here. Make his presence known. And now he speaks. And he speaks just to Moses. I wonder if it was like when Saul spoke, where they could see the light and hear the sound, but they couldn't figure out what was being said. Or if it was just in Moses' own hearing. I, we, I don't know, but... The Lord did not have happy news for the people. He's angry. The Lord gets angry. It's not just anthropomorphism. People say, Bible says God gets angry in order to help us understand. The opposite of that is true. We get angry because we are in the image of God. And that God's reactions to things are shadowed in us. Although we, of course, are carnal and it's corrupted by sin. But God is angry at this people. How long? How long, he says, how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? Ask yourself that question every once in a while. How long is it going to take you to believe after all God's done for you? But God's vows is, I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to start over with Moses. This is the second time God has offered this. The first time was in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10, at the golden calf, which was just as egregious a sin as this one, where God had appeared on the mountain in fire and thunder and glory, and they had affirmed a covenant together. And Moses went up the mountain to receive the law of God. And while he was there, they built a golden calf and started worshiping that. They said, you know what? Moses has been gone a long time. There's no way he survived this long. So what we need is a God. Aaron, make us a God. And he did. He tried to wriggle out of it later, but that's exactly what he did. They made a golden idol and began to worship it. And the Hebrew language describes orgiastic revelry in worship of this golden idol. And Moses came down with Joshua and that's what he saw. And Moses and the Levites had to violently put a stop to this. 
They had to kill thousands of people in order to put a stop to it. And then the covenant was reaffirmed. But in that same moment, after Moses had put a stop to this idolatry, ground it up and forced the people to drink it, he goes up on the mountain to talk to the Lord. And the Lord goes, I ought to just wipe them out. I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses, in that moment, interceded with the people, which is exactly what he's going to do here. We talked about this last time, so I I won't spend a lot of time uh, explaining or defending this statement because we spent most of our time going over it. But the promised land in the Bible is a picture of the life that God intends for his people. It is used in a number of different ways symbolically in the Bible. I think primarily it refers to the abundant life in Christ. It also is used to describe heaven or salvation itself. It's a a vibrant picture in the Bible. So generally I'll say it's the life that God intends for his people. The psalmist will refer this as the rest that God was offering his people. Their Shabbat. They were keeping their their rest every seventh day, but that was only a, a small foretaste of what God had for them as a nation. In Psalm 95, verse 11, when it talks about the, this generation and this event, God says, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And there he's talking about the promised land. And the reason he says is that they despise me. Now, the prophet Malachi will accuse the people of despising the Lord. And they'll, they'll get right back to him and say, what do you mean? How are we despising the Lord? We don't despise the Lord. We're serving the Lord. And Malachi draws out all kinds of examples of their hypocrisy. But God just makes it real simple. How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Their lack of faith constituted despising the Lord. A lack of faith because they did not believe that God could take out all those giants and bring them into that promised land that equated to despising God. We don't really tend to think in terms that strongly in the the church in this day and age that to have a lack of faith equals despising God. Or as I believe it was James who said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We don't think in such stark terms. Everything's on a spectrum now. Have you heard that? Everything is, well, it's a spectrum. It's not black and white. God is black and white about a lot of things. And one of them is a lack of faith equals despising God. And we discussed last time how God has an abundant life for each of us. And it was the last time an encouragement to go get it. That God has encouraged you to do that. But the warning that I gave without dwelling too much time on it is you can fail. There is the possibility of you missing out on the life that God has planned for you. And the way that you miss it is by failing to walk in faith. Let's get some examples here so that we know what we're talking about. And this can range from life and death to some of these issues in your life that that you just can't get over, although your soul is not in jeopardy. So some of these examples might seem more extreme than others, but that's okay. I think it it gives us a scope of what we're talking about. The first thing that you can miss out on if you fail to walk in faith is the blessing of God. Blessings. God has blessings that he desires to give to his people. God's a good God. The Lord blessed Job. We read last time that the Lord does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist wrote. So blessings like healing, 
God wants to bless you. He loves to heal his people. He wants to grant you success. That's the Hosanna Psalm, Psalm 118. Save us, O Lord. This day, give us success. Jabez prayed for his, his tent and borders to be expanded. God doesn't have a problem with success. He just tells you to watch out that it doesn't corrupt you. Peace. The Lord wants to give you peace. He wants to remove all of the depression and the anxiety and that overwhelming stress that you let take up space in your heart. He has peace for you. Peace that passes all understanding. Joy. This, this ability to be unshaken by circumstances because you've got the rock of your salvation in Christ that cannot be moved. But you can miss out on that. And many Christians miss out on good things that God intended them to have. I'm not talking about losing your salvation at this point. I'm talking about something good that God has for you that you don't get. And the reason is a lack of faith. And specifically here, I'm talking about the faith to pray. James tells us, you have not because you ask not. And that might sound odd. Like, well, I feel like all people ever do is pray for blessings. No, no, no. All people ever do is throw up little wishes like God's a wishing well. God, give me a car. God, give me a house. God, give me a wife. Like, I'm talking about intense, on-your-knees prayer. Taking the time to hold God to His Word, stand on your authority in Christ Jesus, and ask that you might receive we tend to take all of these wide, sweeping prayer promises that Jesus gave, like, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Or John, when he said, we know that we have everything that we ask of him. Right? We hear those and we, we try to really quickly spiritualize them to mean, well, that means anything that you need spiritually. That, that's not what he said. He said anything. The Lord delights to give blessings to his people because we don't have faith to pray. Because we think if I do pray, let's focus on healing for a second. If I do pray and someone's not healed, God will look bad. And then so it's best just to kind of keep it, you know, nice and loosey-goosey. And if you want God, maybe, I don't know, we wouldn't want to push you. I don't want to inconvenience you, Lord. Pray. Have faith to pray. If you have a lack of faith in your prayer, you're not going to receive. James said that, didn't he? He said, let not that man think he's going to get anything from God. Double-minded men. Unstable men. Have faith to pray. Let's ramp it up a little bit. God's will for your life. You can miss out on that if you lack faith. That can be your promised land. He has a perfect will for your life. Ephesians uh, 3 verse 10, 2 verse 10. says he has works prepared beforehand that you should walk in. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says each one should live the life that he has been called and assigned by God. Will for your relationships. Will for your employment. <coughs> as a will for your ministry, and other things. But many people will fail to receive because they lack faith. And what do they lack faith to do? Faith to try. This is similar to what we hit on last week. Faith to try. Faith just to get up and go for it. Faith to step out in faith. We talk about steps of faith. And that, I, I always think of Peter when I think of that. Lord, if that be you, let me come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, all right, Peter, come join me. Peter might have very well had faith to walk on water, but if he didn't step out of the boat, he wasn't going to receive it. And it's similar with you and me. There's so many, and this is, it's, it's a cliche at this point, but we, we can't let the cliche deny the reality. There are so many young folks that are just arrested in their development, that are living like adolescents way past the time they should have grown up. 
And so often you talk to them and they're smart and they know what's right and they feel embarrassed about it and they've got plans and they've got skills, but they just won't step out and try. And well, God's called me to do this. God's called me to be that. He very well may have, but if you don't just pack your bags and go, it's not going to happen. You can't expect God just to drop it in your lap. What God drops in your lap is the word that he gave to Abraham, which is depart from your fathers and from your land and go to a place that I'll send you. And then God didn't say much to Abraham after that because he had to obey the last thing he was given. So we've got to get up and try. So I, I, I hate this job. It's really testing my faith. God needs to get me something else. Well, get up and try. Go try to find something. They say, oh, the Lord has called me to be a missionary. Well, where are you going? Well, I don't have skills. I don't have, I don't have education. Well, I'm not going to require you to have education to send you. I just want to make sure you know Jesus and you know what you're getting yourself into. Just try. Number three, you can miss out on obedience. Now it's getting real serious now. You can miss out on obedience. What does this mean? This means overcoming sin and your struggles in life. Where the Lord wants you to not deal with sin anymore. You're always going to have the temptation, but God has handed you victory in Jesus. That's the promised land. Crossing the Jordan and going into a place where you're walking in liberty. You're walking in obedience and grace and righteousness. But so many people lack the faith to change. What do I mean by that? Lack the faith to change. So many people refuse to make the changes necessary. Why? Because they don't think that it'll work. They can't fathom what life would be like without this. I've been a stoner so long, I don't know what I'd do without weed. So they don't, they don't have faith that God can fill that gap. They think that their sin is so satisfying, even though it's not. We've talked about that. My sin is so pleasurable and so satisfying. If I don't have it, I don't think God will give me enough. So they lack faith to change. Or they think, I've tried 10 times and it's failed 10 times. I can't try again. That's a lack of faith. Lack of faith is get up and keep going and trust that God is on my side and I'm seeking God's will and God will show up if I keep moving forward. So many people just resign themselves. I guess this is just how I am. I guess I'm just an angry person. I guess I'm just a liar. I'll just try not to get caught. I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm just a lustful person. I don't know. The Lord goes, I don't see you that way. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Keep trusting me. Don't look at yourself. Stop looking at you. Look at me. What am I able to do? And number four, the most serious of all, you can miss out on salvation with a lack of faith. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, when the Son of Man is raised up, he will draw all men to himself. There is nobody that is beyond the scope of Christ's salvation, and yet most will miss out on it. Not only that, most who have come into the church will miss out on it. That's not me saying that, that's Jesus saying that. He said, many will come to me in that last days and say, Lord, Lord, it's me, you know me. He said it is a narrow road, and there are few that find it. It's a hard way. He gave us the parable of the sower. Yeah, some people get the seed just taken away. Other people join the church and become part of the church. But as time goes on, they're choked out by the cares of this world, or the sun scorches them because they don't have any roots, and they depart from the faith. And you can theologize that however you want. What it amounts to practically is that there are people in this church and every church that are in danger of falling away. 
out of a lack of faith. And we call that saving faith. When you allow Satan to tell you that there's something else out there still that might be worth it. Maybe there's something else. Maybe the reason you joined the church is no longer important to you. That guy you were trying to impress doesn't even go here anymore. So what am I doing wasting my time? Maybe you were trying to, you know, be, be socially respectable. And now that church doesn't really have any kind of social weight anymore, what am I doing here? You need saving faith that just goes all in for Jesus Christ. That, these are the things that I'm talking about here. The things that you can miss out on. Blessings from God. His will for your life. Victory that he desires you to have in obedience and salvation itself. Faith is the key to all spiritual life. Jesus said to people, according to your faith, be it unto you. Some of y'all hear that and go, oh, no. <laughs> I feel that way sometimes. Jesus says, according to your faith, be it unto you. And I'm more like that guy that said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Luckily for us, how much faith do you need? What did Jesus say? Just a little mustard seed. Just a little bit. Just enough to ask. My dad used to say, faith enough to pray. That's all. Do you have enough to, to ask and to pray? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, the writer says, about this generation that we're reading about now, he says, good news came to us just as to them. The good news for us is the gospel, the good news for them being the promised land. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's faith, Christian. It's belief. You've got to trust God every step of the way, not just for your soul, but for every morning, noon, night, and midnight that the Lord is with you that you're going to obey him, that you're going to receive everything he has for you, and you're not going to let a bunch of worldly trinkets get in your way. But God determined to wipe out this generation and start over with Moses. God doesn't do optional. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But let's look at verse 13. So this is what God said. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll start over with you, Moses. Verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Once again, Moses turns down the off offer of being the great patriarch of Israel and becoming the sons and daughters of Moses. He pleads with the Lord to spare the people in their sin, which is exactly what he did back in Exodus 32 when God said, they're worshiping a golden calf. I'm going to wipe them out. Moses stepped in and said, no, here he points to the Egyptians and the scoffing that the other nations are going to have against the Lord. This is how these people thought. They weren't secularists like we are now, 
who, well, their army wasn't big enough, so yeah, they couldn't, I guess they didn't pack enough provisions. They would have said, I guess their God was too weak. I guess that God they trusted in was strong enough to beat Egypt, but not strong enough to beat the gods of the Canaanites. So maybe we ought to start worshiping those gods instead. Scoffing and mocking at the name of Jehovah God. And he reminds God also of his name and his character. This is what happened in Exodus 34. After God had, had agreed to spare the people, Moses asked him, remember, show me your glory. And God hid him in the cleft of the rock and declared the name of the Lord. That he was, as it says right here, slow to anger, full of love, full of forgiveness, although also just and unyielding in his justice. But you need that. Oh, God is, is either the nice old Santa Claus in the sky. Does that help anybody? No. That kind of God can't judge the wicked. But a just Lord who shows mercy anyway is both stronger and better. So much of the idea, by the way, so much for the idea that forgiveness from God is a New Testament concept only. Like, I'm, I'm really getting tired of hearing this one. This has been a heresy in the church since the first days of the church. There was a guy named Marcion who believed that there were two gods. There was Old Testament God who was mean, and there was New Testament God who was nice. And he cut up the Bible in order to make it work. He was a heretic. And this is constantly, you hear this to this day. People who call themselves Bible scholars, like, well, there's definitely a very strong change in tone from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's the mark of somebody that has not read the Bible for themselves. That's somebody who's read the cliff notes and gets the gist of it from the culture around them. Because you read the Old Testament, I mean, read the Psalms. Right? I've loved you with an everlasting love. You're the apple of my eye. You're the sheep of my hand, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. And then in the New Testament, oh, it's all kindness, it's all nice. But what did Jesus say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God is a complete God, and he is the same throughout the scriptures. It's also frustrating because people will, in one sense, God is so mean and God never shows grace and never shows mercy in the Old Testament. And then they want to get on God for all the apparent injustices he had. So how could you let people get away with something like this? Well, which is it? Is God so forgiving that he lets people get away with stuff you don't like? Or is he so harsh that he never lets nobody get away with anything? Read your Bible. Be the expert. And people say things like that. Say, where? What, what, no, which verse specifically are you talking about? They usually pull up something in Joshua. We go, well, no, hold on. That's, there's context to that, though. You can't just yank that out of there. Like, well, Jesus was all about love and kindness, and he never had anything mean to say about anybody. You go, I don't think you've read the story of Jesus. Have you actually read it yourself? Well, no, but I, I listened to a podcast. <laughs> Moses has been reviled, usurped, threatened, and worn out by these people. But look at this. He still prays for them. He still prays for these people. It is the responsibility of we who are strong in the spirit to intercede and plead for those who are weak. Paul would put it this way, Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you, not pastor, bishop, elder, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Paul puts it on our shoulders to look out for each other. The extent of your care for one another cannot just be to tattle to somebody who's in higher authority than you. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and that's what ministry is, is making sure that the, the church is walking in, in obedience. You know, it can't, by the time it gets to me as the senior pastor or one of the elders or even home fellowship leaders, usually there's been so much cover up and don't let Tyler know about it. Let's look good at church. By the time it gets to me, it's very hard to unravel it. But y'all are with each other in, you know, in the seats and in the, the service and in the ministry and people will talk to you. And when stuff comes up, you've got to be the one to bear that burden and bring them back. First, we are to plead with people. This is what uh, Caleb and Joshua did last time. They got on their knees. They tore their clothes. Guys, don't do this. To plead with them. The Bible tells us that we ought to admonish one another. You don't need to be a licensed counselor. You don't need to be an ordained minister. If you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, then you are competent to admonish brothers and sisters in Christ. To rebuke them. You need to be able to comfortable with rebuking people. Saying, that's wrong. You can't do that. You've got to stop. You can't talk like that. You can't treat him like that. You can't be going to places like that. To rebuke people. To do whatever you can to help them. To receive their blessings. To fulfill God's will. When they say they're sick and they want prayer, but they don't, I don't really know. You'll be the one to say, no, no, no. We'll pray together. I'll pray with you. Let's pray right now. If they, they confess to you some sin they're struggling with, you say, I'll be there to help walk you through it, to check up on you so you can have somebody to talk to so this thing doesn't master you and take up residence inside of you, but that it, it, there's no foothold for the devil. Sometimes it's to give each other a kick in the pants when we need it. Son, you've got to move out. <laughs> Ma'am, you've got to get a handle on that child. We've got to be able to do this for one another. And we certainly need to plead with one another to be saved. You should evangelize to people like you would want to be evangelized. Think of before you were saved. Like, I wish somebody had just grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, now you listen here, pal. This is what's what. Plead with each other. When you talk to somebody's child who says, well, yeah, I grew up in church, but I don't really go anymore. You've got to plead with that, that man or woman. Think of our, our brothers and sisters who have daughters and sons that have walked away from the faith and how heartbroken we are. When you encounter that person somewhere else that is maybe not part of your family, you plead with them like you would want this kid to be pleaded with. Take responsibility for each other, church. We're a family. We're a community. We have to think that way. This can't just be the place where you come to sit, get your blessing, and move on. We are a community. We come together. And number two, we have to intercede for each other. Moses prayed for the people. Get on your knees before God. Appeal to his character like Moses did. God, you know what you're like. You're abounding in mercy. And you're willing to strike the flesh so that the soul may be saved. So God, I pray that you would no longer allow him to have joy in his sin. Make it like ash in his mouth. Bring him to his senses. Lord, strike him with the light of conscience just one night so that he'll know he's got to get it right. Pray. Seek the Lord's glory like Moses did. Say, Lord, think of the testimony if this one were to be saved. This would be another Saul of Tarsus if she came to Jesus, Lord. She'd tell the whole world and everybody would be listening at least for a moment. 
Intercede. Get on your knees and fight in the Spirit. We sing that song, right? When I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. The battle belongs to the Lord. So put the battle in His hands. Some great quotes on prayer to remember. You can never do more than pray until you have prayed. After you've prayed, you can do more than pray. But you can do everything in the world. If you don't pray, it's not as much as if you had actually just prayed one time. Do we believe that? We have to believe that. Well, I've had some really good talks with them. We've all had good talks with people that are in sin. They don't go anywhere, don't they? And it's just frustrating. Oh, Lord, what is going on? Get on your knees. Go over their head. Go to, the, go to the one who has authority. Sometimes I like to say, Lord, I was there when that kid was dedicated in front of the church. We held him up and prayed for him. God, we're going to press that claim on him right now. We're going to say, this kid's already spoken for. And drive the devil away. Jerry Falwell, all our failures are prayer failures. Think on that for a minute. All of our failures are prayer failures. And of course, it is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. Hudson Taylor said that one. Jude put it this way. Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You ever wonder what your verse is for hate the sin, love the sinner? It's Jude 23. So anybody that says, well, it's not even in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Show mercy to some, grab others by the scruff of the neck, and yank them out of the fire. Well, I don't want to be mean. They're going to hell. They're wrecking their family. They're messing up their kids. They're causing division in the church. Get tough and apologize later if you have to. Now, some people like really get a kick out of telling people what to do. And they call it a rebuke, but really what it is is they're being a busybody and somebody else's Christian liberty. Don't do that. But if somebody's walking in sin, plead with them and intercede for them. Get on your knees and pray. And I'm not talking like before dinner. Do that, but like, I mean, pray an hour, two hours, five hours, 10 hours, 40 hours. Devote one hour a day for 40 days. That adds up to a complete work week of prayer for somebody. You don't think that's not going to have an effect? You can't drag someone into the promised land, but you sure can beg. You sure can beg. And I've had moments where I've begged and pleaded with people not to do this, and then they go off and do it anyway. But I have had the pleasure of speaking strongly to somebody and hearing them, watching them just break and say, okay. And the relief that floods over you in that moment. And you sure can pray. You can say, all right, you don't want to listen to me? Fine, God listens to me. And God is stronger than you. Moses interceded anyway. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. According to your word, but, that is a consequential conjunction right there. Truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them, verse 23, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me, how? By a lack of faith, shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, 
I will bring into the land into which he went, and all his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, them I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. The Lord answered his prayer with a yes and a no. I've heard a great Bible study that sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says yes and no, or sometimes he says not yet. This is a yes and no, because God is able to do that. Prayer is pleading before the one who has authority to make decisions. First thing, he says, okay, yes, I'm going to spare their lives. But here's what he does. He does three things. First, he affirms that his glory will fill the whole world no matter what. Verse 21, he swears, saying, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. You know, Moses was saying, your name will be besmirched by these other nations. God recognizes that, but he also tells Moses, Moses, nothing is going to stop my glory. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord like water covers the sea. God will not be stopped. Second, he says, I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for. You're going to stay in this wilderness and die here. Remember what they said? Oh, that we had died in the wilderness. And God said, fine, you're going to die in this wilderness. For every day that the spies were in the land, you're going to spend one year in the wilderness until all of you have died. Third, he says, you're so worried about your kids, which you can see that was kind of a smoke screen for their own cowardice. People will do that. Hold up their kids as kind of a block. Well, you can't criticize me because my child's involved. God sees right through that. He says, here's what's going to happen. Your kids are going to grow into their adulthood in the wilderness because of you. And then they will go into the land and they will achieve every victory that you thought you were going to have. You will know my displeasure, says the Lord. Only Joshua and Caleb are to be spared. 
And the other ten were killed by a plague from the Lord. And it, it seems to have happened immediately. It doesn't say they were struck down like in, the, in an instant. But they certainly got sick and they certainly passed away and everybody knew why. God says every one of this great 600,000 man army will be dead in 40 years. Then we'll go in. You need to grasp what a monumental moment in scripture this is. This is one of the pivot points of the Bible, especially of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, where they refused. They are in covenant with God. He dwells in their midst. They have his law, but they are condemned to wander the wilderness for 40 years as punishment. I hear a lot of jokes. People say things like Moses got lost in the wilderness and that's why he couldn't get in there. Ha, ha, ha. I don't like that joke. This was a sentence of death from Almighty God on these people. Why did it take them 40 years to get there? Well, it only took them a couple months, but they refused. Now you could say, now wait a minute. They were worshiping the Lord with sacrifices and keeping the law. I mean, what's, was this really? Did it really demand a punishment like this? Well, remember what Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 5? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption. Presuming on the Lord. Saying, God has to do good things for me, because I go to church. I serve in the children's ministry. I help out with Discovery Club. I tithe. God has to do something for me. God says, that's idolatry. It's a transactional relationship with God, and it's not what you have. God is not going to hold your spot in the promised land forever. You can miss your opportunity and be left in the wilderness. You're saved. You're out of Egypt. But you are not experiencing the fullness of all that God has for you. There are Christians that live there, set up camp there, build monuments there, and claim that this is true religion, and anything beyond this is excess. This is serious. This is not your life to live. This is not your life to live. It is your life to give to Jesus. Because the only life you have is that which has been bought by his precious blood. So you don't get to negotiate with God which pieces you do and don't want. Like you're customizing an iPhone. It is all in or nothing. Will you turn to Mark chapter 10? This is the clearest New Testament example I can think of, of somebody that came right up to the borders of the promised land and then went back and left and went the other way. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. As he was setting on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's kind of winking at him there. Love that. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I know what the Bible says. I want the secret. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
He looked at him and he saw, saw this guy. He saw his life. He saw his arrogance. But he also saw his honesty in realizing that even though he thought he had done everything he needed to do, it wasn't enough and he needed to go to somebody else. He looked at him, he loved him, and he said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He says, you, you are a prideful, greedy, materialistic man. I know you're, you're rich. I know you're a ruler. I know you're young. You've got the whole world ahead of you. I want you to get rid of all of it. But Jesus, you didn't make him do that. He's not materialistic. You are. That's not holding his heart. It's holding yours. Come follow me. Give up everything. Break off everything else until it's just you and me. And he, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A personal invitation from the Lord Jesus himself, telling him exactly what needed to be done to his face, and he walked away and said, no. Do you think that guy was able to enjoy his life ever again? Do you think he was able to be surrounded by his palatial dwelling and all of his money and all of his awards and think of anything other than Jesus saying, this is what you lack? Wilderness. Spend your life wandering in the wilderness. Not here, not there. Stuck in the desert. It's that passage, by the way, that prompted Jesus to say how hard it is for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He preferred what he already had to the adventure of life in Christ. And you can reject the promised land too. You can be brought right up to the point of healing, but refuse to obey the word of the Lord. In many cases, when the Lord does a miracle, he has something to work out in the person's life first. And when they let that go, that's when he provides the miracle. But many people get right up to the point and they know what it is and then they're told what they got to do and they say, you know what, I'll just live with it. For the will of the Lord. You can miss opportunities and things that God has commanded you to do just because you wait too long. Because I've called you to be a missionary to Nepal, but I can't wait forever for you. These people are dying, and I've determined to save them. So I'm going to send somebody else. Maybe you just let life pass you by. God had a lot of great things planned for you, but it's just too late. Obedience. You can refuse liberty too many times. Until you're simply stuck in your sin. And you have no sensitivity in your conscience to the Holy Spirit anymore. And God just says, all right, well, there's a whole treasure trove of reward in heaven you're missing out on. But number four is salvation. People put off salvation until their deathbed. I have never in my life met somebody who came to me and said, well, I've always known I needed to come and get saved one day, and I always said I'd get around to it, and today's my day. That doesn't happen. It's a lie from the enemy. You've got to come and die to yourself. You've got to come and give up everything to follow Jesus. The people were not going to die, but God's will for their lives was going to be lived out by somebody else. That scares me to death. To think that there might be something great that God has for me to do, but because of my lack of faith or my obsession with living a normal life, I miss it. And I get to heaven and God takes the crown that is my name on it and hands it to somebody else. 
Oh, that scares me to death. You know what scares me to death? The thought of some unbeliever getting saved radically, coming into the church, and leading a mighty revival in the American church. I, I, that would be great, but I can't have that. Lord, I'm here. Use me now. I don't want to be shown up by somebody else. Verse 39, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Oh, great. They repented, right? But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up. For the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. Now, if they were truly repentant, they would have broken down weeping at that moment, wouldn't they? But they presumed, or Samuel's word, they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. They presumed. They said, well, we'll force God's hand. We'll go out into battle and he, he loves us too much. He'll have to defend us. And God said, I don't have to do anything. I just showed you all mercy by not striking you dead yesterday. They lament as well they might. But the next day they get up and they try to take it anyway. He says, your, your chance is over, guys. The, the moment is past. The opportunity is gone. Now, that's not something 21st century wealthy Americans are used to hearing. That you missed your chance. Done. It's over. Sorry. You missed the bus. Well, there must be something we can do. No. You missed it. There was the promised land. And now you can't go. Why would you do that, Lord? I did not do that. You did that. They went up anyway, without Moses, without the Ark of the Covenant, to try to fight the army that had almost beaten them last time. In Exodus 17, this is when Aaron and Hur had to hold up Moses' arms to defeat the Amalekites. But now they think, what? Because they've been marching in the desert for a few months, that they'll overcome this army that beat them last time? You cannot pick and choose when to fulfill God's will in your life. Do not be deceived. It is in his time or not at all. You may already be too late. In Acts 24, when Paul is, is in prison in Caesarea Philippi, he, he's brought before Felix to speak to him and make his case. And after some days, it says, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed getting convicted. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. This is not a good time for me. Because you know, I'm kind of in this adulterous, half incestuous relationship here. So it's not a good time for me. Whenever you talk about sin, I tend to get real convicted because I do a lot of sinning. But people do this every Sunday around the world. That's ah, not a good time. Oh, it's not a good time for me. Yeah, look, I, I, I want to raise a godly family, but like you can't, you can't find a wife or a husband in a godly way. You just, so you, you got to play the game, do your thing, and then you'll come around. 
you try to grab God's blessings in your own strength, you will fail miserably. You can't do it. You just can't. Let me just teach you right now. You cannot get God's blessings for yourself. You can't demand blessing from God. You can't demand healing from God. Some people pray for healing like they can command God. And that's not good. Lord, you must, because you said it. Now you better get in here. And, oh, my goodness gracious. You're talking to Almighty God. You can't even force wellness. You can't, well, I don't need God to heal me. Uh, medicine will take care of me. Yeah, sure it will. How, we all know somebody who has been strung along by doctors and procedures and medications, and in the words of the gospel, have been suffered many things at the hands of the physicians. It's in God's hands. You can't go back to the days of your youth and pick up that old opportunity. How many men and women have been drawn away from their marriages because they still have a crush on somebody they knew when they were 15, find them on Instagram, and then leave? It's not going to work. It's not going to be good. You can't go back. You missed the boat. I think God wanted me, to, wanted me to go and be a missionary. Well, it might be too late. Well, I can deal with this sin whenever I want. You can't just unhabit yourself. Don't you know that? Well, I can get rid of this anytime. I, I can stop lying. I can stop losing my temper anytime I want. I can stop drinking anytime I want. I can stop getting high. I can, yeah, sure you can. And salvation certainly cannot be put off. You're not promised another hour, never mind another day. Do you not understand that you are dealing with the living God? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Not some internet bot that you type and sends an automatic response to you. This is a person. This is a relationship. He is God. Consider that. Capital G, God. He is not like anybody else. You can't treat him like anybody else. You have to come on your knees as a supplicant. There's no convenient moment to come later. Well, when I've burned out myself and my sin, then I'll get right with Jesus. When I've tried everything else, then I'll get right with Jesus. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. C.S. Lewis said it this way, this moment contains all moments. You think you can just say no, no, no to Jesus and that you will have the ability to say yes the next time? Were it not for the intercession of Jesus Christ for you even now in heaven, you'd be gone already. Hebrews 7.25 says, He liveth ever to make intercession for them which will inherit salvation. Jesus stands before the just Father and says, Not yet, give them time. I'm drawing them. The Holy Spirit is working on their heart. Don't take them yet. You do not have all the time in the world. You can fail and you can miss out. There will be works in heaven that are done by somebody else that God intended for you if you do not walk in obedience to Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews spends chapters 3 and 4 talking about this passage in Psalm 95, which is also about this passage at length, and he sums it up in this way. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We are commanded to lay hold of God's rest. Everything else has been done for you in Christ. What is incumbent upon you is to go get it, to walk in obedience, to step up, to pray, to handle your business. Jesus did not hesitate at the finish line, did he? Aren't you glad? 
in the Garden of Gethsemane as he fell on his knees and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And he called out to his father and said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. I don't want to have the flesh flayed off my back and see my friends betray me and have my beard ripped out and held up as a public spectacle for everyone to see as my enemies mock and laugh me. I don't want to be separated from you, Father. But he followed it up by saying, not my will, but yours be done. He drank that cup of wrath down to the dregs for you and for me so that I could stand here and offer you salvation and abundant life freely. Which seems too easy. It had to be. You couldn't do nothing else. We must not falter at the finish line. It's not enough to be a Christian culturally. It's not enough to teach your kids the Bible instead of the Book of Mormon. It's not enough to come to church instead of sleeping in and watching the game. It's not enough to tithe. It's not enough to go on trips. It's not enough to serve. You've got to be dead to yourself so that you may be alive in Christ. Everything you've been searching for and praying for, every little whisper that the devil whispers in your ear that says, there's something over here, there's something there, you're going to find it here and nowhere else. It's a glorious thing. It's waiting for you. There's the promised land. You're standing on the banks of the Jordan. The ark has gone ahead of you and parted the waters and all you need to do is go. But so many will not. They'd rather stay in the wilderness and try to make their way back to Egypt. To some, this, is a message, this message is a fragrance of death. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says that because now you are responsible for what I have said to you. You have heard the gospel, which is you must repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and give your whole life over to him in order to be saved. And if you don't, eternal damnation in hell waits for you. You have no more excuses as if you had any to begin with. God will hold you responsible. You'll stand before God and say, I didn't know, and he'll say, yes, you did. October 5th, 2022, you sat in that room and Pastor Tyler Warner laid it out very plainly to you and your heart was thumping out your chest. You knew what you needed to do and you didn't. So depart from me, you worker of iniquity and do everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those people will be dragged away screaming and cursing and blaspheming God and tormented forever and ever as they justly deserve. Do not think to yourself that you have every chance in the world. Well, not today, next time. Next time. There might not be a next time. I've told this story many times because I must tell this story. I had a dear friend in, in college, perfectly healthy, perfectly godly young lady, and in her inner sleep rolled out of her top bunk in the inner dorm, hit her head on the, on the table, went to the hospital. They said she was fine. She needed a few days to recover. She died in her sleep. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She wasn't doing anything dangerous. But her life was gone. It was taken from her in that instant. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have today. You don't even have the next five minutes. God will give you over to your sin or put you on the shelf. It's now or never, Christian. It's now or never, 